I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. Woohoo! We get a woohoo this week. Yes! (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so um, the world sucks. I don't know if anyone has noticed that lately. Um, Blows a little bit. We're, we're, We're living in some dark times, but you know what? I'm trying to focus on the positive, which is very difficult to do. Um, you know, I'm excited. There's a new Jordan Peele movie coming out. Um, I just read the Humans of New York um, latest book, Tanqueray, written by Tanqueray herself, uh, who was a incredible uh, burlesque dancer in New York in the 70s. That was wonderful. Um, just trying to think of all the happy things in the world that, you know get us through life because we need it i'm going to see metallica next week oh my god well okay i thought i was gonna do some cool stuff next week but no (laughs) you apparently you're cooler than me yes i am not cool i just live in a cool place yes you get all the cool shows right and i don't if you are one of those serious metalheads who wants to talk shit about metallica i don't want to hear it yeah it doesn't matter metallica like i don't care who you are like unforgiven enter sandman uh, comes on we're all getting hype we're getting right. we're fitting to go break some mm. windows yeah exactly I, they yeah. are legends actual legends exactly yes. so yeah. yeah so um this week's episode you know when i was you know putting in all the folders for us to share our scripts and photos with each other and all that i just called it the happy time grand bag episode <laughs> because we don't <laughs> we don't really have a theme this week it's just whatever brought us some joy and so <laughs> oh god i feel um, terrible now with what i picked <laughs> that's okay i know we all changed our minds about a thousand times at least i, I did i um yeah. And so I literally decided like two days ago, like, oh, duh, why don't I don't talk about this person that I've wanted to talk about forever. And it's not likely we'll ever get to him. So, and I, I haven't got to talk about a cryptid in a while. So that's I'm very right. Excited. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, I think Lori's going to kick us off with a downer. Yes. Apparently. Well, it's not happy I mean, time. Grab bag. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like for me, it's sort of a downer, but it's like, I, I, I'll, I'll get into it, but I'm just going to l- let y'all know up front because I don't think I mentioned it in my script. I'm talking about the bodies on Everest. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Part- <laughs> yeah. Now that's a, that's a cemetery. <laughs> right. Part one of probably two or three parts. I'll do. A Have part you guys two. ever seen the t-shirt that was like everybody on Everest was once a very motivated person? <laughs> No, but yes, I'm going to be talking about a few of them today um, of the, you know, almost 300 suspected people that are. Is that all? That's that's bigger than some cemeteries that I've been to. It's, it's, that's what they're thinking, but you know, they don't know for sure how many are up there. Yeah. So I am of the personality type when I watch a movie based on actual events or a movie that I'm interested in, period, I then take it upon myself to dive down a rabbit hole to learn whatever I can about the true story behind the film. You could call it an obsession, uh, a la everybody's obsession with uh, Joseph Quinn from Mm -hmm. Stranger Things. I can appreciate that, the obsession everybody seems to have with that gentleman. He did a very good job. So, upon learning more about the actual events that occurred on the mountain, I was shocked not only to realize that the film was pretty close to accurate, but the final radio conversation between Rob Hall, who was played by Jason Clark, and his pregnant wife, Jan, who was played by Kira Knightley, was verbatim the actual conversation between the couple. Oh, wow. wow. Oh, Now, like... I don't get emotional in movies. I didn't cry in Pearl Harbor. I didn't cry at Titanic. But when I learned that and then rewatched that scene, I cried harder than I did when the when I first saw the Lane Frost biopic eight seconds in 1994. (laughs) You didn't cry in Titanic? No, but I bawled like a baby after eight seconds. I have I am on a podcast of psychopaths. (laughs) Yeah, no, but seriously, eight seconds, man, I 
cried for a good 45 minutes after that movie. And my see, mom. I didn't cry at all during that one. Oh, I don't know. Never I've seen it. I know I, it, but I've never seen it. I, I might be the psychopath. Wait a minute. <laughs> I think it was because, you know, horse girl. Oh, uh, yeah. Going to see yep. this movie, not being prepared for what happens, but knowing it's based on a true story and yeah. then having that happen and being not expecting it. Very, yep. very sad. Luke Perry deserved all the awards for that movie. Yes, he did a great job. Sure. Okay. Back to dead people on a mountain. <laughs> In researching the events of 1996, I also learned that when someone dies on Everest, they're pretty much left there. In fact, there there are several bodies that have become markers for those attempting to summit the mountain. So today, I want to talk about a few of those people whose final resting place isn't in a peaceful cemetery or an urn, but in the exact spot where their lives ended pretty awfully. Mm Mm-hmm. At more than 29,000 feet high, I think it's actually closer to 30,000 feet, Everest is the tallest mountain in the world. When asked why he was so determined to reach the mountain summit, famous mountaineer George Mallory said, quote, because it's there. (laughs) God damn it, (laughs) sir. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He would go on to become one of the mountain's earliest victims. Oh, (laughs) open your mouth and uh (laughs) everest will uh, shut it for you yeah there's just something about making it to the top of that mountain that causes a kind of madness in people uh i think they call it summit fever (laughs) okay this reminds me of it's kind of related but kind of not but if i don't say it i'll lose it yeah hello adhd um so i went to the arkansas school for math and science my junior year of high school and it's like the gifted of the gifted, right? Right. But mm-hmm. on the marker board in the common area, we had uh, eagles may soar, but weasels don't get sucked into jet engines. Yes. <laughs> so think about that, Mr. Mallory. Yes. yes. The 1996 disaster showcased a prime example of the commercialization of the mountain and how inexperienced people were being allowed to attempt the summit. In fact, the sheer number of expedition teams is mentioned at one point in the movie Everest, uh, and that number just continues to grow year after year. In a 2020 article for The Hustle, Zachary Crockett wrote, quote, in the last 20 years, Everest has seen nearly a 10-time increase in traffic, with more more than half of all 10,055 summits coming in the last decade. In 2019 alone, a record-setting 876 summiteers caused a traffic jam that contributed to 11 fatalities. Wow. A traffic jam on fucking Everest. Yeah. Yeah. People need to get a grip. <laughs> well, apparently they lost it, and that's why they're dead. <laughs> Alan Arnett, a mountaineering coach and Everest expert, noted, quote, all of a sudden, people with money discovered they could hire a professional team uh, and mountain guide with Sherpa support and have a chance to summit the world's tallest peak, end quote. So, Lovely. yeah. Only the rich, only the rich. Imagine that. So, and now a little background on the steps it takes to summit this mountain, because you can't just decide you're going to climb Everest willy-nilly. No, first of all, it costs you about $100,000 just to attempt to reach the summit. fuck's sake. I mean, does the the mountain require a toll every so many feet or? (laughs) And there's no guaranteeing that you actually will reach it or make it back alive. Of course not. Wonderful. I love it when a lot of money to potentially die. I know. Jeez. Uh, Josh Brolin's character in the, uh, in the movie Everest uh, was a very, was a rich doctor. Now, granted he survived something just, absolutely horrible and send him all the good vibes in the world for i mean essentially he's he's left for dead and then makes it down god damn and, okay yeah, so his story is amazing but and he sir his the person he portrayed survives anyway okay climbing everest is also not a trip you can make over a week's vacation it takes weeks to reach the top as you have to make frequent stops to allow your body to adjust to the higher altitudes And that becomes extremely important when you reach what's known as the death zone. 
No, oh, God, I never want to be somewhere called the fucking death zone, which is where the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere falls a whopping 40 percent. You know, what doesn't have a death zone fucking target. OK, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, let's just calm down. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, another thing to know is that, you know, if you die in the death zone, which, you know, as you probably guessed, a lot of people do, <laughs> there's no getting you off the mountain because helicopters can't fly in that zone because of the lack of oxygen. So you're and fucked. people you aren't going to risk their lives to get your dead ass body oh, uh-uh. down. No. Right. Right. So if you aren't in impeccable physical health and take the necessary precautions, you could suffer from swelling of the brain, which can lead to high altitude cerebral edema. No, If you get that, you can expect nausea, vomiting, hallucinations, confusion, and even death. No, thanks. Another possibility is high altitude pulmonary edema, which can lead to fluid in the lungs, a persistent cough, fatigue, and weakness. No thanks. Oh, and and you also might cough up a white frothy liquid. What? Yeah, I don't like the sound of that. Like you have rabies? Mm -hmm. Everest rabies? I guess so. And those who those who have suffered from it compare it to feeling as if they are suffocating. Oh, Oh, fun. fun. Just a fucking delight. Yes. You could also experience snow blindness from the brightness of the sun on the snow and frostbite because the temperatures of Everest are low enough to freeze skin instantly. Jeez. No. I don't even like going camping when it's temperate outside. Okay. Right. I don't like anything below like 70. So, no, 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 no. So, to all of this, NASA astronaut Carl Gordon Hines was climbing Everest in 1993 to test some new NASA equipment at different altitudes, and he developed tape. So, that's the pulmon- pulmonary edema. He came down off the mountain because obviously he knew what he was experiencing and he died in his sleep. What? No. It's uh, that's fucking, not cool. well, he wasn't, he, it, it was just testing. He wasn't actually on NASA's dime at the time he was doing oh, this, but okay. a gotcha. fucking astronaut who had been to fucking space died from climbing this mountain. That's wild. Oh, it sounds like a fucking blast to me. You know, <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. This is bullshit. Yes. <laughs> the landscape of Everest is not only populated with the bodies of those who died trying to reach his peak, but the trash of those attempting the climb. Hey, <laughs> don't litter. <laughs> Including empty oxygen tanks, tents, equipment, and a literal shit ton of frozen shit. Ew. In fact, there's an entire region known as Rainbow Valley, which of course is located in the death zone. Why not? That... that earned its seemingly innocent nickname from the colorful jackets of the corpses piled up through the area. Ugh. So in 2019, it was estimated that there was at least three tons of trash and poo littering the mountainside. That's a lot. When cli- Now, when the climbing season ends, the Nepal army sends helicopters to attempt to clear as much of this as they can, but they have a limited window in which they can do this because the mountain is only clear for travel between March and May of each year. And mm-hmm. 95% of the time, there's a bunch of dumbasses on that mountain, so they can't get in there until they're out. So right. these people are out there whipping their dicks out to see who can get to the top first. It is just... <laughs> That would be Whatever. the last place I would want to whip a dick out, exactly. to be honest. <laughs> you would think. Yes, yes. Now that I have given you some insight into the literal shit show that is Mount Everest, let's get into some of the people who have died while attempting this endeavor. And again, I- I'm obsessed with, and I have read and researched and done a whole bunch of deep dives that I'm not going to get into now, but... Again, I'll probably talk about more people because there were several stories that I just didn't feel I had the time to convey for this particular episode. So we'll be coming back. First, let's go back to Mr. George Mallory. He was an English mountaineer who attempted to climb Everest three separate times during the 1920s. During his second outing, his team made it higher than anyone else had without supplemental oxygen so they didn't have any extra oxygen with them on his third trip 
he and his climbing partner, Andy Irvine, Andrew Sandy Irvine, disappeared at about 800 vertical feet from the summit. Disappeared? Disappeared, vanished without a trace. That's terrifying. In 1933, British climber Frank Smith saw what he thought was a body while looking through a telescope at the north side of the mountain, which was kind of in the general vicinity of where Mallory went missing. But his body wouldn't be officially found for another 66 years. Oh, wow. When Graham Hoyland's expedition, the Mallory and Irvine Research Expedition, found his shockingly well-preserved remains on the north side of the mountain at 27,000 feet on May 1st, 1999. Oh, wow. Yeesh. Disappeared in 1924. And this was, uh, he was found exactly where Smith said there was going to be a body. He was found face down with a rope attached to his waist, uh, but there was no sign of the camera that he had taken with him or any remains of his uh, climbing partner, Irvine. Uh, There was what appeared to be like a rope jerk injury around his waist. So it's believed that they, one of them slipped and fell and they were attached to each other. So they both went down. Um, Obviously the rope was cut at some point. Um, but it is not the fall that killed Mallory. No. A golf ball sized hole in his head, consistent with the blade of an ice axe, was believed to have caused his death. Oh, snap. So the theory is, you know, they're falling down the side of the mountain and he grabs his ice axe and is trying to grab on hit, hitting the, the mountain so that, you know, it slows his descent and it bounced off a rock and bam, right in the skull. Oh, what a terrible way to go. Everest said, fuck you. Yeah, dude. And as with our previous episodes, there are pictures of a number of these people, uh, including Mallory. And it is shocking how well-preserved he was. Um, I am not going to include those. You can Google it if you want. But it was scary how well-preserved his remains were his now his clothing wasn't it was in tatters right, right but the majority of his body was in in very very good condition to have been on that mountain for 75 years i guess because it's just been in essentially a freezer for exactly 75 exactly it's mm-hmm. insane and so here to the conspiracy or not really a conspiracy but just kind of you know what what people like to theorize There are people who are in the camp that Mallory and Irvine did successfully reach the summit, which would have made them the first explorers to reach the top of Mount Everest. Um, It wouldn't become official until 1953 when Sir Edmund Hillary made it to the top and back. So, you know, actually successfully completed the the trek in 1953. Um, Mallory's daughter had said that he carried a photo of his wife that he was going to put at the summit. And when they found his body, there was no photo with him. Um, and, but no one's found that picture at the summit. So where did that picture go? And again, where is this camera that they know he had with him? It was a a Polaroid and, uh, Polaroid even came out and said that, um, if we were able to get this camera that because of the frigid temperatures, they would most likely be able to get the photos off of it and see, did he take any pictures of them at the summit or did they die before they made it? Suspicious. And there's been no trace of Irvine. They have looked and looked and no one has found the remains of his uh, climbing partner who also had a camera with him. So that's a mystery that will likely never be solved because at this point with all the telescopes and and ways they've been able to view that side of the mountain where uh, Mallory was found, Irvine's in a crevice somewhere and Mm -hmm. is never going to be found. Um, Hillary deserves the credit though for making it because again, he made it to the top and back down and to be able to tell the tale of, of hitting the summit. After Mallory's body was discovered, the expedition said a few words over his remains and covered his body with stones to prevent further damage and left him where he was, as is done with most of the bodies on the mountain. 
it's just too dangerous to attempt to bring bodies down from such high altitudes in such dangerous conditions. I think uh, one of the articles I read said it would take about six Sherpas to carry a body down the mountain. And wow. it's just too risky mm-hmm. uh, for, yeah. them, for them to do. It's kind of like when you're lost at sea, you're, you know, you're yeah. at sea. Right. Um, oftentimes, as I mentioned earlier, the bodies on Everest are used as waypoints or markers on the way to the summit. That includes the body that is known as Green Boots, who died during the 1996 disaster and whose name for the bright green snow boots he was found wearing. He is believed to be an Indian climber named Suwang, Suwang, I think, Paljor, who sought shelter near cave after getting separated from his team, which was a group of the Indo-Tibetan border police group that was hoping to summit that year um, of the group. Only one made it back alive. His body was found lying on its side, almost as if he were curled up asleep. In many instances, people have had to step over his legs on their way to the summit. Wow. And mountaineer Noel Hanna estimates that about 80% of climbers actually stop and rest in the cave with him. Oh. Ten years after his death, Green Boots was joined by another Everest hopeful, 34-year-old Englishman David Sharp, who was making his third attempt to reach the summit when he froze to death in Green Boots Cave. Now, there's quite a lot of controversy surrounding his death, which I'll get to in a minute, but I think it's important to note here that Sharp, he was a good climber. He had climbed several mountains in the past, but I kind of feel like he was out of money because as you know, I mentioned, it costs a hundred thousand dollars to do this legitimately and he did it by his on his own he didn't hire a sherpa he wasn't going by the protocols um and decided to make an attempt without a guide and with very limited supplies it seems like the one thing you don't want to cheap out on right including he didn't take a lot of oxygen if any uh he began his quest on the evening of may 13th um did i say the year i think it's uh yeah it was 2006 it's unknown whether or not he made it to the top but on the night of may 15th climbers were shocked to discover him lying next to green boots in the cave according to the reports which were mixed there were multiple different variations of the story he was sitting with his arms wrapped around his knees and was unresponsive assuming he was too far gone they left him in the cave and did not even radio down to base camp for help mm. Another group that came along shortly after the first said he waved them off when they spoke to him. And by all accounts, no one, and it's estimated that about 40 climbers passed him while he was sitting in this cave freezing. No one stopped to help until climber Maxime Chaya found him in the cave while descending from the summit. He desperately radioed to base camp for health, but knew there was really nothing that could be done because Sharp's face was already turning black. Ay, ay, ay. So he sat down and prayed over him until the weather just got so bad he had to leave or he was going to risk death if he didn't. Right. Uh, controversy arose after this death due to the sheer number of climbers who saw him in distress and did not help. Many claimed that, oh, yeah, I radioed for help, but there was no record of them having done so. Uh, Others assumed he was just too far gone, and since there was nothing they would be able to do, why why bother trying to help this man? They had summit fever. They wanted to get to the top. And Sir Edmund Hillary, you know, that guy that first successfully reached the top of Everest in 1953, had very strong feelings about the death, no pun intended. (laughs) He said, quote, on my expedition, there was no way that you would have left a man under a rock to die. It simply would not have happened. It would have been a disaster from our point of view. I don't think it matters a damn if he was from another party, if he was Swiss or from Timbuktu or whatever. He was a human being and we would regard it as our duty to get him back to safety, end quote. For real. And there are several uh, people that are resting on Everest that that could be argued toward. Um, you know, a lot of times they drop and they can't get up and walk. And so they're just left because uh, in the minds of the Sherpas that are leading them, look, my job is to get the, the people that can physically get out of here out. And if I try to help you, 
when you were to the point where you cannot physically walk, you're just going to kill the rest of us. So it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bad, you know, a bad math to ever have Mm -hmm. to do, but it's like when I, you know, was reading and stuff about the Donner party and where it got so bad that like, if you couldn't keep up or you, they're like, we can't stop. We have to keep going. And you're in one of those situations where it's like, sink or swim but right. i think what makes this so shitty is like these aren't people at a wagon train these aren't people after a natural disaster these are people who are ridiculously rich choosing to do this yeah right like right. this is your leisure and if your leisure results in you know you letting somebody die underneath a rock then i don't know maybe reconsider some things about your life <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah it, it it was just nuts um, a year after his death, David Sharp's body was removed from sight at the request of his family, but he does remain on Everest, one of an estimated 280 adventurers who never made it off the mountain. Hmm. A monument was erected on the Tibetan side of the mountain that reads, quote, sleep serene amid the snows untrod, end quote. Oh. And there are a large number of monuments. I couldn't find like any specific website that talked about all the different monuments that are at that base camp, but there's one for him. There's one for Edmund Hillary and his climbing partner. Um, and I do have pictures of the Hillary Memorial as well as uh, David Sharp's plaque. Um, because again, you know, there's just, there's something about getting the, to the top of that mountain that just makes, made these men do whatever it took and they lost their lives. And so whenever we come back around and I have an opportunity to talk about some more of these stories, there's two women. Um, One is called sleeping beauty. And the other is known as the German woman who both are very prominently seen as people make their way up and down Everest. And that's it. That's yeah. (laughs) You know, I was wondering about women, like this seems like such a dude thing to do, but mm-hmm. I was wondering yeah. if there were any no, women there, who yes. had made it to the top or who had died. Mm-hmm. There are, there are both, there are both, cool. um, you know, there, um, there was a woman in 96 that was a part of the, the big disaster that the movie Everest was based on. Um, and then the, the one that's known as Sleeping Beauty, her husband actually, they did it together and he went back for her and he disappeared but he's never been found so they they don't they don't know where he wound up but uh they did find her so i will talk more about uh those two ladies in a future episode because as i said 280 bodies that's a lot of people and absolutely you know a lot of uh stories that can be shared unfortunately yep I'm sure. so glad I'm lazy. I I'm like <laughs> I used to we had I worked with a cardiologist who uh climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and got a picture of uh him holding the flag for the American Heart Association. This was back when I worked there. And uh yeah, when he was telling me about how they had to prepare just for that trek, you know, it's Kilimanjaro yeah. is one of the light like yeah. right. versions. I was like, yeah, no, not no. in a million years. There's <laughs> nothing no. you could pay me that would make me want to go up on a mountain like nope. that. That's a hard so. no for me. Exactly. Yeah. So Good job, Luhu. Thank you. Sheena, what All you got for right. us? Uh, we are going back to another cemetery, but this is a cemetery that is traditional. <laughs> it's okay. not up on a mountainside somewhere. <laughs> so picture it. Bonaventure Cemetery in Savannah, Georgia. One of my very favorites. Yes. (laughs) For almost a hundred years, there was a man buried there whose grave was unmarked, but his name was on nearly a hundred other markers in that cemetery. Okay. Do tell. Uh Uh, Yeah. So John Walls was born in Wurttemberg, Germany. I don't know if that's Wurttemberg or Wurttemberg, but we are not German. Show ain't. Um, <laughs> uh, he was born on August 31st, uh, 1844. That makes him a Virgo. Uh, 
his parents were John and Elizabeth. And I know he had some siblings, a couple of sisters and brothers. I'm not really sure how many, and it doesn't matter a whole lot. So no offense, Wall's children, but we're not worried about you. I feel um, like Germans are by default Virgos. Hey, I could, <laughs> I could see that. I could see the Earth Scorpios. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I could see that. I need too. to, I need to watch my Scorpio slander. I don't want any of them coming after me. Look, I have a lot of Scorpio friends as a Pisces, and there they can bring it. Yeah, well, so there you go. I have go after Hannah. I have threatened Scorpios on this show before, and I am not <laughs> concerned. Um, so I'm not really sure on the time frame on some of this, but the general consensus is basically that. Um, his parents died when he was 13, so Oy. he was sent to live with his sister in Philadelphia. Um, and as a young man, he began to work as a stonecutter, and he saved his earnings to return to Europe so he could continue his studies in sculpture. Now, I'm not sure on the time frame on this. I'm just going to throw it in here because I thought it was cool. This, this next section has no big relevancy to this to the story as a whole i just thought it was a cool moment in time so sometime i think before he returned to europe he exhibited some of his sculptures at the american centennial exposition in philadelphia in 1876 this was the first official world's fair to be held in the u.s and of course it celebrated the 100th anniversary of the country um nearly 10 million visitors attended this and 37 countries participated in it and in addition to some john wall's sculptures you could also see these things there and this just blew my little mind y'all like i love this coming together of all this history in one story um so on display was the right arm and the torch of the statue of liberty um you could pay like 50 cents to go inside and go to the top and that paid for the pedestal um you could also see alexander graham bell's telephone oh the first commercially successful typewriter uh the wallace farmer electric dynamo which i want to be the electric dynamo as my superhero name (laughs) that was a precursor to the electric light um, and then there were some new foods that were um, introduced to the public, including root beer, popcorn, and Heinz ketchup. Wow. <gasps> and, I would have had a great, except for the ketchup. I would have had a wonderful time. And the Beaver Falls Cutlery Company, we all know the Beaver Falls Com- Cutlery Company, exhibited the largest knife and fork in the world. And there's a picture of it online with a very, you know, average size man and a giant... <laughs> fork and knife i don't know i just thought this was rad yeah that's crazy (laughs) and then this guy from germany is there and he's like hey y'all i have some sculptures i mean i don't know they sounded like that but um but either way he won the horn of plenty award at this exhibition i have no idea what that means but that sounds rad i would also like to win a horn of plenty award (laughs) either way let's go back to john walls i just thought was that was a cool moment in time so he goes back to Europe and he studies um, sculpture with some like sculpture bigwigs in Paris and in Vienna. Uh, in the late 1880s, he was working with Oscar Victor Tilgner in Vienna, um, who is apparently a, a big shot in sculpture. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, when a man came in and asked about getting five statues made for his museum back home. Uh, The man was Carl Brandt, and he was the first director of the Telfair Museum in Savannah, Georgia. Um, That Telfair Museum, it's now the Telfair Academy of Arts and Sciences. It is still in Savannah, and it's the oldest public art museum in the South. It is wonderful. I cannot recommend going to it more. Anyway, these statues were of Italian artists Michelangelo and Raphael, uh, Greek sculptor and painter Phidias, Flemish artist Rubens, and Dutch painter Rembrandt. And apparently, John and his boss worked on four of the sculptures together, but the Raphael statue was apparently John's solo work entirely. Uh, Each of the sculptures are seven feet, six inches high. They're made of Marzano which is a hard limestone from some little Italian city. I'm sure that makes sense to someone who's into sculpture either way or marble for that matter. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, upon completion, John traveled with the statues from Vienna to Savannah to make sure that they arrived safely and that they were set up correctly. And he fell in love with the city of Savannah and decided to move there. Oh, wonderful. And Savannah and really America at large really loved him back. He opened up his own studio in Savannah and he soon earned a national reputation for his fine craftsmanship. Uh, he also created a bust of Carl Brandt, that first director of the Telfair Museum, who came over and asked him to make those statues. Um, and he was also often commissioned to make monuments for local cemeteries. There are about seven or 80 of his pieces in Bonaventure Cemetery alone. Seven or eight? Seventy or eighty. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I was like, wait, seven or eighty? That's a big. Yeah, big difference. <laughs> Sorry. Um, plus, there are some of his pieces in Savannah's Laurel Grove Cemetery and in the city's Catholic Cemetery, and then in some cemeteries outside of Savannah. Uh, many buildings in the city's historic district have all these little architectural details that he made. I'm not a sculptor and architect. I don't know all what they're made, what they're called, I mean. Um, but here are some that I, I read about. Um, he created carvings on the Masonic Temple on Bull Street, figures over the entrance of the Chatham Academy on Oglethorpe Avenue, designs on the Wright Square Post Office, and the baptismal font at the St. Paul's Lutheran Church. Um, John really was Savannah's most beloved and famous sculptor for about 40 years. Um, I want to talk briefly about some of the most interesting monuments that he made that are in cemeteries. Um, and I'm going to mention like three, four, five. I don't know how many. I can't count. And then we're going <laughs> to get to his like big like masterpiece. So one monument he is famous for making was that for the Hartman sisters in Bonaventure Cemetery. Uh, the monument is for sisters Mary and Emma. Mary was born in 1858. She died at the age of two in 1860 Aww. of a fever. And then uh, Emma was born at the end of 1860, and she died just a few months later due to seizures in March 1861. So these sisters never knew each other in life um, because Mary died before several months before Emma was ever born. But their monument that John Walls made for them shows them cuddling. Um, it looks like Mary's holding Emma, and it is the sweetest little marker. And a lot of people think the sisters are twins, but I think if you look at it, you can tell that one baby is bigger than the other baby. Um, and it's just so pretty. It's such a really lovely way to remember those babies. Uh, one of my favorites is the Grimm family monument. Grimm, G-R-I-M-M. -M. I always like to think Ooh, it's like, you know, it. yeah, I like the stories. Uh, Diedrich and Margaret Grimm. Uh, their monument is in Elmwood. Oh, Bonaventure. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing a lot of stuff for Elmwood in Memphis today. So like my brain's partially there. Anyway, the Grimm couple, they are buried in Bonaventure in Savannah. It's a huge monument, absolutely massive. And there's Grimm in huge letters. I and then love you have it. mother and father on there. And then there's a beautiful angel in the center. That angel has really stayed bright white over the years because it's kind of covered a little bit by the top of the monument. And um, the angel is writing on a tablet and that may either signify um, writing down the couple's good deeds or writing down their names in the book of life because you know Victorian era everything was about symbolism so oh absolutely yeah but what I found out and that I love was that Diedrich Graham was a grocery store owner and a saloon owner and in Ooh. 19 19 in 1888 <laughs> this is just a fun story he was fined 50 dollars for keeping his saloon open on a Sunday a boy good yeah. for you Diedrich good job um as you can imagine, too, with names like Diedrich, and I'm about to get to some Schaefer's, a lot of these folks were um, fellow German immigrants. Um, he didn't do stones specifically for other Germans, just, but he did if he knew and was close to them. Does Savannah have a big German population? I think so, yeah. I mean, um, they're a port city, so you got a little bit of everything. Yeah. So... Uh, the next one that I really love um, was of Peter and Mary Schaefer. It's also in Bonaventure. It's a double cradle grave. So there's like this 
it, it holds both of their graves and it goes around. It's, I'm going to have pictures with all this. It features an angel holding lilies and lilies symbolize innocence and purity. And it looks like the angel is ascending to heaven. And what I thought was cool was that John Waltz actually um, copyrighted some of these designs so other sculptors wouldn't um, steal his work. And this was one that he copyrighted. Um, another one that I thought was really cool was John Schaefer, who's also buried in Bonaventure. He was also from that same little town in Germany as John. Um, he built nearly all the cotton gins in Florida, Georgia, and Alabama before the Civil War. So I guess he had a dollar or two. Yeah, now, <laughs> the monument in this monument in Bonaventure, from what I read, I don't know how true this is. It says that this is the only um, tree stone in Bonaventure. I find that so hard to believe because there are a billion tree stones. It feels like in cemeteries around here, trees symbolize a life cut short. I, I, I can think of like five off the top of my head at Elmwood, you know, so, but there's only supposedly this one in Bonaventure. I don't know. Either way, it's very lovely. And it also includes a palm leaf symbolizing victory, an hourglass with wings to symbolize how time flies. And there is a drape on there to symbolize the veil between heaven and earth. And another one that's really beautiful that he did is for Bertha Wolf, who had a great name. Mm -hmm. She's buried at Rose Hill Cemetery in Macon. We mentioned Rose Hill um, many, many moons ago um, when I talked about the Wolf Fork family murders. That's the mm -hmm. same cemetery that Bertha is buried at. Um, Bertha was originally from Prussia, and she and her husband had a successful family business in Macon. Um, so they had plenty of money for this absolutely gorgeous statue. So she's standing atop this giant pedestal. She's wearing a beautiful dress. It's the prettiest dress I've ever seen in stone. Like it's really pretty. And I noticed there's an extra layer of fabric, sort of like a drape around her arms that covers her backside, you know, for modesty. Absolutely. Um, so you couldn't just see, oh, whether she had a rump or not, you know, um, the pedestal she's on features two beautiful bookends and this pedestal and all of this symbolizes that she was a pillar of the community. In one arm, she has a bouquet of lilies. In the other hand, she has one lily and she's looking down toward that lily. And later, a couple of years later, after her husband passed, He's buried in that spot where her eyes are looking down and where Aww. she's handing off that lily. Um, and when this monument was installed, it made all the local papers and they talked beautifully about how it was the most beautiful monument out there and all this. So, um, so yeah, those are, that's just a quick summary of um, some of the ones that he's done that I really think are beautiful. Um, but probably his most famous monument, his masterpiece, what he is known for, is the grave, uh, is the monument he created for little Gracie Watson. Gracie was the only daughter of W.J. and Francis Watson. They were a prominent family in Savannah. They owned a local hotel, and Gracie was known to sort of roam the hotel and make friends with everybody. And, you know, you can imagine a, a, a little kid running wild in a hotel. Um, but unfortunately, she was six years old in 1899 when she became sick and died. I've heard it was pneumonia, but I've heard it was a couple other things, too. It was sometime around Easter. I've heard before Easter, after Easter. I don't know that Kids it matters. Kids just be dying back in the day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it sounded like it was one of those things that if she had lived in modern times, it probably would have been She'd fixed. have been fine. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know, back then was tough. Um. So yes, yeah, sweet little six-year-old Gracie passed and her parents took a photo of her to John Walls and said, make a monument for her in her exact likeness. And it, he did, this is it. It's the exact size of, and it is a spitting image of this little girl. It is precious. It is so sweet. Um, it is one of the most visited and most beloved monuments in all of Elm, uh, all of Elmwood, all of Bonaventure. Sorry, y'all. I'm getting ready to, I'm like, I'm learning a script for Elmwood and then I'm doing a tour or a presentation this week. I'm just, bleh. anyway, 
Back to Savannah. Um, Bonaventure is on the National Register of Historic Places, partly because of its beautiful monuments. And Gracie's Monument is one reason in particular that it's on the Register of Historic Places. According to the Statement of Significance, which I guess you have to have to be on the National Register of Historic Places, Gracie's Monument is, quote, one of the few funerary monuments in Georgia carved in someone's exact likeness. That same statement calls John a sculptor of transcendent local importance and said that his works are be um, are considered um, to be of high artistic value. Oh, um, by the way, if you're wondering where Gracie's parents are buried, uh, they are not in Bonaventure. They moved away after Gracie died and they are buried in unmarked graves in Albany, New York. Oh, oh, but Gracie is still, it really is. That bothers me. Um, but Gracie is still just so loved. Um, people still visit her and leave her toys and gifts. Um, and also this year they celebrated Bonaventure celebrated her 140th birthday. Good for her. Which I thought was sweet. I was like, sweet Gracie. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful monument. Um, Okay, so back to John's personal life. Uh, So he married once to a lady named Sarah Gilmore in 1907. He was 63. I'm not sure how old. (laughs) Yeah, I guess he took a while before he found his (laughs) lady love. Um, Sarah was a widow. I'm not sure how old she was, but she was a widow. We're going to talk about that more in a second. And unfortunately, we lost the great John Waltz on November 27th, 1922, due to bronchitis. He was 78. Now, he is buried in Bonaventure, where, as I said earlier, there are about 70 or 80 of his monuments. Um, But he's buried in his wife's plot at Bonaventure. So her first husband, the, the one before John, had purchased this plot in Bonaventure so they would have somewhere to be buried so he's buried there okay Okay. so he's there and then John dies so they put him there but they put them on opposite like sides of each other like with room in the middle for Sarah so she (laughs) can be married that's married convenient beside her two for husbands. her yeah isn't it though she yeah. passed in 1931 so she is buried between those two husbands I forget the first husband's name and John um but, but as she I said had earlier a good run too she really did I, I think she must have been I kind of wondered if she was older than John but I I didn't research into her too much it was yeah. hard enough to find information on John truly I would love a book on this man but I found so little on him anyway as I said earlier, John Waltz, who has so many monuments in Bonaventure, didn't have one for 93 years. Oh, my God. Isn't it the phrase like the cobbler's children have no shoes? Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no one knows why. I guess Sarah just never bought him one. I mean, she lived for another almost 10 years. I guess she just never got around to it. Didn't think anyone else could do one as well. I don't know. Um, anyway, the Bonaventure Historical Society paid for John to finally get a marker in 2015. Oh, bless. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it was sort of made to match Sarah and her first husband's markers, which are just very sort of these rectangles that are kind of boring, honestly. But John's is more personalized to showcase who he was. It looks like an incomplete column lying on its side. And the right quarter is not smooth to indicate, you know, he was not done. He didn't finish. Yeah. Yeah. And there are some stone cutters tools that are carved into the top of it. So it, it almost looks like he put down his tools and finished and didn't finish working. Oh, it's really cool to see it. Yeah. Um, the cemetery's historical society also honored him with the walls garden, which is designed and funded by the society and it's near his grave. Cool. So if you want to see John's work for yourself, um, first of all, if you take a lot of history tours in the city of Savannah, they will likely point out a lot of his work to you. I know they will for sure. If you go by Telfair and you will obviously go by Telfair. Um, and I've taken, I've almost taken every tour offered in that city practically because I'm obsessed with it um and almost all of them have mentioned oh there's a John Waltz there's a John Waltz that was designed by John Waltz um between him and an architect I learned to like pick their stuff out 
there's this one architect who designed like every not every house but a lot of them either way you 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 pick up on we'll get to that um and then if you go on a bonaventure tour of course they're going to mention him um those five sculptures that originally brought him to savannah are still in front of the Telfair museum and again there's more than 70 of his monuments at bonaventure um one thing to look out for if you are looking for a john walls piece this is my, one of my favorite things to notice and he doesn't do it on everything but he does it on most things if you look at the foot if it's a full body person sculpture person thing <laughs> can't y'all tell i did so much research i really did <laughs> i actually have more sources on this than anything i've ever researched either way um one foot will typically hang off the base so it'll be a person standing there and this one little toe or top of a foot will or one foot may be a little bit more in front of the other this is true for gracie this is true for all five of those statues in front of Telfair. um and like i said i've seen some where he didn't do it but it, it's almost always that's how i know it's a walls is because that one foot will be out which is just so cool um and i don't have a really great quote to end on so i was just going to end on what I heard this years ago about Bonaventure Cemetery, and I say it to people all the time when they're like, what's a beautiful cemetery? And I always say Bonaventure. They say it's better to be dead and buried in Bonaventure than to be alive anywhere else in the world. Okay. And I like wow. to think that a lot of people, a lot of that is because of John Walls' work. Yeah. So thank oh. you, John Walls. That's really cool. Yeah. I just looked up the picture of the, the little baby's grave, and it is beautiful. The sculpture. Yeah. Gracie or the Hartman sisters? The Hartman sisters. It's so pretty. It is Poor so little pretty. Baby. Poor I little really want to go clean it. Yeah. It needs yeah. It. Now, Gracie, I think they keep Gracie. They must spray her down with D2 every so often because she is almost always bright white. Mm -hmm. She is just beautiful. Um, so, yeah, that's John Walls. Okay, Hannah, you're going to lighten the mood. We're not going to. Yes, I am. That, well, John Walls wasn't depressing. That was really well, cool. I, I think he's sweet. I just, I mean, I don't know what he was like as a person, really. I couldn't find a lot of that, but I just love his work. I always have. I mean, I like it. It's cool. Now for something completely different. <laughs> well we know i love murder mayhem and ghosts but of my other favorite topics is none other than aliens speaking of aliens rosie get off the goddamn keyboard <laughs> jesus mary and joseph a criminal <laughs> blame it on the x-files if you must but i subscribe to mufon's newsletter and will one day pony up for a membership hey same here it's gonna happen one day <laughs> to that end, our story takes us to Aurora, Texas, about 30 miles northwest of Fort Worth. One balmy Saturday morning on April 17, 1897, at about 6 a.m., residents of the still very tiny town saw a cigar-shaped craft streaking through the sky, seemingly in some peril. The ship made its explosive landing on the windmill 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 <laughs> of judge j.s proctor launching fiery debris over a wide swath of his land imagine it's 6 a.m and you wake up and your windmill's exploding oh man that's scary yeah. <laughs> oh my god you belong in federal prison anyway that's a kitten y'all not, not either you. one of us <laughs> I don't know about you two. I don't know. <laughs> um, the townsfolk came out to investigate the crash, the wreckage of which looked like bits of silver and aluminum foil. Tragically and allegedly, as is everything <laughs> in alien lore, there was also a small body. Aww. A local mil I know. <laughs> a local military service member called the departed pilot a Martian because everything not of this world was clearly from Mars. Obviously. Aurora citizens named the pilot, wait for it, Ned. <laughs> Ned! Ned. I, I don't understand. That's lame. No I offense know. to any Neds in the audience. He's from, he, you're calling him a Martian and then naming him Ned? Whatever. No. Oh, oh hold on, hold on. Um, Rosie's about to jump on Gwen. 
Oh, um, no, Rosie. It won't end well. No. no. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, honey, let's. You let's will not survive this. <laughs> and allegedly buried Ned, allegedly, in a local cemetery with a small headstone. The debris was cleaned up and much of it dumped down a local well. What? Because you should absolutely contaminate the town's drinking water with debris <laughs> from another planet. <laughs> It's a great so this idea. The whole city is now made of mutants, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Please. The, the episode I watched of UFO Hunters, which if you have not watched it, please do. It is just so fucking entertaining. <laughs> I'm just glad that there are middle aged white men out hunting UFOs and not people of color. So it's just like, you know what? You guys go have fun. True. In any other circumstance, you would be that neighbor. So, yeah. you know what? Y'all go have fun. Um, but according to that particular episode of Ghost Hunters, or Ghost Hunters, they're lovely too. UFO <laughs> Hunters. Um, yeah, Steve. Exactly. Um, I guess people who drank from the well, like, had really bad, like, deformities and cancers and stuff like that. Though, yes, Exactly. Though, again, as with everything UFO related, allegedly. <laughs> Uh, writer S.E. Hayden would write about the brouhaha in the Dallas Morning News in an article published on April 19th, 1897. So a few days after. And for 1897, that's a pretty short, you know, window of time. Mm -hmm. The question of what happened and who the ill-fated space pilot might have been remain unsolved. Airplanes were not yet invented in 1897. Though some would posit that the odd-shaped craft may have been a dirigible, my favorite fucking word ever. <laughs> I love a good dirigible. <laughs> or some even speculate that it never happened at all. Researchers have looked into the story for years, testing the water in the well where the wreckage was said to be stored, digging metals out of trees at the crash site, using radar to see if there really is a Ned in Ned's grave. In the 1970s, people even tried to exhume the remains. However, you can't exhume remains without the permission of next of kin. And who's to know where <laughs> in the universe Ned's family resides? The truth of the situation depends entirely on whether you want to have a good time and let the town of Aurora enjoy its place in UFO lore. It was so cute. The one of the articles I looked at because they do have like conventions and like symposiums and all sorts of fun stuff there in Aurora. And this little local bakery had like UFO cupcakes and alien oh. cupcakes. I was like, you know what? They're having fun. They're cute. having fun. Nobody's getting hurt. Let them have their fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like. So it was short and it was sweet, but there was no more. You know what? There's going to be a murder. There is yeah. going to be a murder in the, this household. Um, so, yeah. They so buried. There was, there's there's an alien grave. They gave an alien a Christian burial. Because that's not the most Texas fucking thing I've ever that heard. That is a very Texas thing. And a Christian name. I know. Ned. Couldn't call him Edward. They had to call him Ned. Ned. I like how... Um, Sometimes we just choose um, interesting people and we don't necessarily choose their graves. But somehow this week with zero topics, we chose very cemetery and grave heavy stories. We did. We Go did. us. Yes, I'm, try I'm trying to, to, to focus more on that and not just always, you know, you know it's a, it's, killing. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I wanted a cryptid, God damn it. And yes. by George. I'm so glad you did. I love yes. a cryptid. Good job. Go, Yay. Ned. Rest Yay, in peace. Ned. Yeah, rest, rest in, in peace, peace Ned. Ned. And watch, just watch UFO Hunters in general. It's a good time. It's a good time. I, I wonder if this, uh, if he inspired the movie Cowboys and Aliens at all. I sure hope so. <laughs> but y'all, speaking of Cowboys and Aliens, I, I don't think I ever shared this with y'all, but my dad wrote a novel when what? i mean this was back in the 90s because it was when we you know I was we all need a copy young. i'm just telling I you don't, right I, don't, I don't even know if he has it but it was Ugh. it was literally about 
cowboys aliens and native americans like, oh my god it was, and i'm like whoever made cowboys and aliens owes my dad like restitution checks because it's like it's his story he if needs to anyone, share that if so, anyone yeah, ever I, asks what my favorite book is i'm going to respond it is terry's book about aliens native americans and cowboys i'll have to i'll have to ask him if he remembers yeah, i need he it. that book but he, i, I mean he like he wrote it good terry is <laughs> terry my dad yep um but yeah no he uh he i mean it was the old it wasn't even like it was a macintosh computer yeah, yeah. that d- had no operating system that's how yep. long ago that was but awesome yeah. I'll have to remember to ask him about. He probably doesn't remember it, but well, I wonder if he at least has a plot outline that he can share. Oh, I'm sure he can. I remember when he used to go upstairs and write it. We'll do a dramatic reading. It'll be great. Yeah. Can we? I'm yes, here for this. I'm, sh- I'm sure. I'm sure he's gonna <laughs> just be thrilled with that. I love um, it. Love, love it. it. Well, yes. Do we, do we, have we picked a topic for next week? Do we No, know? we forgot to. I kept telling y'all when we started this, I'm like, I've, I'm forgetting something. I forget Is that something. what we, now we know. Yeah. Now, yes. I mean, we have, we'll, we'll discuss it afterwards. So guess what listeners? Uh, it will be a surprise. It'll be a surprise um, to us too. Yes. Apparently. Yes. Um, so yeah, tune in. But before we let you go, Luhu, where can they find us? We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cemetery Row Pod, or you can send us an email to cemeteryrowpod at gmail.com. <laughs> Tell your friends about us. Leave us a review. Um, we hope you enjoy what you hear. We hope you send us some emails with some good ideas for future episodes, or if you have an interesting story you want to share. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll figure out what we're doing (laughs) next time. Yeah. Awesome. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.